The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, you guys, I'm so excited for this message. I've been waiting for it. I can't wait to deliver it to you. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. As we're entering into a brand new year, we take this opportunity each year to seek the Lord and to see what He might want to say to us in this house. Lord, what is the word you are speaking over our house, this body, this local ecclesia, this gathering of believers? And and for those of you who've been part of our church for the last year, you know that last year's word was, who who remembers last word? Promise. Promise. Praise the Lord. And it was so cool because um, just today... Uh, a friend was, was swimming in his backyard in his pool, and he sent me this video of this massive rainbow uh, right over here in, in the Del Sur community. And I said, wow, Lord, that is so cool. Uh, as we get ready to kind of turn the page and enter a new calendar year, you're reminding me that for the last year you've been faithful to your promises, because that's what the rainbow is. It's a, a symbol that God gave to Noah to ratify a promise that he gave him that he would never flood the earth again in the same way that he had done. And and so it's been a year of walking in the promises, claiming the promises, standing on the promises, rememorizing the promises and experiencing God's faithfulness. And it's just been absolutely wonderful. Um, I also wanted to make you aware of these little booklets. You can pick one up. They're in the foyer. Now, what is this? This is a little booklet that will help you keep on track. Those of you who are making a commitment to read through your Bible, this will help you to that end. And can I just say, you can't make a better New Year's resolution than spending more time in God's Word. My dad used to be fond of saying, a chapter a day keeps the devil away. And so years ago, we came up with this nice little booklet. It keeps you on track. And I don't know if you're like me, but I like being able to you know, check off boxes. And so as you read through the Word, you can just check off the boxes and keep track of your progress. And just reading like 15 minutes a day, a couple chapters in the Old Testament, a couple in the, the New, you will read through the entire Word of God in one year. And I promise you, if you'll do that, you will be radically changed. Um, because how could you not? It's the living Word of God. It's, it's active. It's powerful. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And so those booklets are available to you. You can pick them up on your way out. And then the last thing I wanted to mention is this coming Wednesday, uh, I believe, yeah, this coming Wednesday, we will have our first worship night of the new year. We take the first Wednesday of every new month, and uh, we use that opportunity to, to just dedicate our, ourselves to worshiping the Lord, and He comes down. He inhabits our praises. I would love to see this room packed with people who have gathered and bring in the new year with thanksgiving and praise. So that's this coming Wednesday, and then next weekend, we'll have our communion services. So those are always a blessed time. There's miracles. There's an outpouring of God's Spirit. If you haven't been here for one, put it on your calendar. Be here next Sunday for Communion Sunday. With that, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll dive into our study of the Word. Thank you, Lord. You are the Word, the Logos. 
And we know the Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and nothing that was made wasn't made through, was only made through Him. And then the Word became flesh. So we open your Word in the hopes that we're going to meet with the living Word. We're not here just to check a box, Lord. We're not here to go through the motions. We're not here to just do church and sing songs and become better versions of ourselves. Lord, we need to be utterly transformed at a heart level so that this city is, is reshaped and conformed into your image, so that the kingdom of heaven comes down and invades earth. And so, Lord, we pray for your word to minister tonight. Take your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, release it in our lives so that we're never the same. And we pray and ask all these things together in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 All right. The word the Lord has given me for this year. You ready for it? The word of the Lord for this house and this year, 2024, is encounter. Encounter. Amen. I believe this is going to be a year of divine encounters. Now, let me define that word for you. The word encounter means, and I quote, to come upon face to face. And this is what we need. We need face-to-face encounters with the living God. I mean, going to church is great. Reading your Bible is great. Praying more. These are all wonderful things. But in and of themselves, they're not enough. What we need is a radical face-to-face encounter with God Almighty. In my experience, I've found that far too many Christians settle for a relationship with God that is strictly theoretical and intellectual in nature. What I mean by that is they know all about God. They could ace any test on him. You hand them a a scantron and they're going to pass the test, but they haven't yet met him or encountered him personally. And so my prayer for you and for me and for us as a people in this coming year is that we would encounter the living God and have our lives forever shaped and and, and formed by him. You know, the Bible is chock full of stories about people who had life-altering encounters with God. Many of these people encountered the Lord, who encountered the Lord were already believers, but not all of them were. Um, These divine encounters happened to all kinds of people, and they happened in a variety of places. I mean, just read through your Bible. Zacchaeus was sitting in a tree when the Lord approached him and changed his life forever. Moses encountered the Lord on the backside of the desert, and and he met the Lord at a burning bush. Paul had his divine encounter on the back of a donkey as he was riding down the Damascus Road on his way to arrest Christians. He wasn't even a believer, and the Lord knocked him off his horse and changed his life forever. And, And here's the thing to know. While the experiences of all these individuals vary greatly, and how they encounter the Lord. One part of their story that reads the same is every one of them was forever changed. See, that's the point. You can't encounter God and walk away the same person. He's going to change you. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this story of one man's divine encounter with the Lord to see how God used it to change everything 
for him. With that, let's go ahead and begin reading there in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. We begin our study of Isaiah's divine encounter by considering what he saw. And that's the first blank in your outline if you want to fill that in. What Isaiah saw. So there's a lot to unpack in this verse. I mean, it tells us what Isaiah saw, when he saw it, and where he saw it. And all three of those things are important, and we'll break them down. But let's start with what he saw. What did Isaiah see? He saw a vision of the throne of God. The throne is the central reality of all of existence, both the seen and the unseen realms. When you compare the vision that Isaiah has here of the throne of God with the other versions of heaven that we see through the pens of men like Daniel and Ezekiel and John, for that matter, all of them seem to talk about the throne of God. For instance, in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, the throne gets mentioned 16 different times. Again, it underscores underscores the fact that the throne is the main focal point around which everything, not only in heaven, but in all of existence, revolves. The throne is what we need a vision of in 2024. So that's the vision that Isaiah receives, a vision of the throne. Now, the timing of when he receives this vision is, is, is significant. It's noteworthy. He gets this vision of the throne in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, why is that significant? Well, King Uzziah was a king, so he was a pretty significant individual. And so this happens in the same year that he dies. And so that would have made it noteworthy on on the face of it. But on another level, it's as though God is reminding not only Isaiah, but all of his people that while the earthly throne is now vacated, the king of kings still reigns on the throne in heaven above. Can somebody say amen? amen? You see, Uzziah was He was a godly king. He was one of the better kings that Judah had. He wasn't perfect, and he had a rather sad ending. But more or less, he was a godly king, and under his rule, the nation prospered both economically and religiously. According to 2 Chronicles 26, Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And so he had a close friend, Zechariah the priest, who instructed him, and he sought to follow the Lord to the best of his ability. Now, he became king when he was just 16 years old. Can you imagine? You're 16 years old, you get your driver's license, and you get the keys to the kingdom. That was Uzziah's experience. Now, he reigned for 52 years. Some king's reigns were very short, if you look at them, and others were long, and he had one of the longest reigns, and he reigned during the height of Judah's power. And so when he died, the nation mourned, and it would have only been natural for the people to be asking or thinking, what are we going to do now? Where are we going to look for direction and for leadership? Who's going to lead us? Because for 52 years prior, it had been Uzziah. And as long as he was on the throne, there was a steadiness in the people. But now the throne was empty. And so the future seems fuzzy 
and uncertain. And so I find it noteworthy that it's during this season of confusion and uncertainty and mourning that the Lord gives Isaiah this spectacular vision of his heavenly throne. And perhaps that's exactly what you need today. Why? Because life has a tendency to to strike us. It hits us. And when it hits you, it can send you reeling and it can leave you feeling uncertain about the future. Maybe something's happened to you. You've experienced tragedy. You've experienced loss. And when that happens, what you need desperately is to be reminded that there is a God who sits on the throne in heaven, that it's all under control. It's under his rule and it's under his reign. The things that rock you don't rattle him. Everyone in Israel might have been wringing their hands and shaking their heads and thinking, Oy vey, what are we going to do? The king is gone, but God's not nervously pacing back and forth in heaven. Earthly kings are going to come and they're going to go. They're going to come on the scene and they're going to exit the scene, but the throne in heaven is settled forever. I love the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 2, verses 2 through 4. Let's read these verses together out loud. They're in your notes. The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So the kings of this earth, they plot and they strategize and they plan, and many of them have an anti-Christ agenda. I'm not sure if you were aware of that. But God just sits on his throne and he laughs at them. Their plans are ultimately futile. I think you would do well to to keep this in mind, in particular, as we move into another election cycle here in 2024. You know what I'm talking about. Next November, we may or may not elect a new president to the United States. And while I would encourage you to exercise your civic duty and get out there and vote and vote biblically, vote, vote scripturally, while I think we should do that, I also think it's important to remember that regardless of who ends up occupying the address at, what is it, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., there in the White House, no matter who sits on the the earthly throne in D.C., ultimately, God is the one who's on charge, and he is working all things together according to the counsel of his will, his plans, and his purposes. So, regardless of the outcome next November, don't allow your peace to be tethered to the outcome of an election. It should come from knowing that God rules in heaven above. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Amen. So Isaiah sees this vision of a throne in heaven. And as enamored as he is by that throne, it's not the main thing that captures his attention. You see, even more impressive than the throne is the one who sits upon it. And he describes him to us there in verse 1 as the Lord, high and exalted, the train of his robe, filling the temple with glory. Now, this is interesting to me. Starts off great. I see the Lord, high and exalted. And then he digresses and he begins to describe his wardrobe, what he's wearing. I mean, of all the things Isaiah could have told us about the Lord, he describes his outfit. I mean, it must have been a pretty 
spectacular outfit, and, and certainly it was. I mean, the train of his royal garments filled the entire envelope of the temple there. I was reading about Queen Elizabeth II and what she wore at her own coronation back in 1953. I guess it was rather impressive as well. She had a a huge diamond-studded crown on her head. And as she proceeded down the aisle of Westminster Abbey, she wore a, a, a robe of royal purple velvet. It extended some 18 feet beyond her. And she had six handmaids that were carrying the train of her robe. As beautiful and as impressive, though, as Queen Elizabeth's garment was, it pales in comparison to the train of the robe of the Lord that fills the whole temple. Why did Isaiah focus on it, though? There are a couple of reasons. For one, it speaks of his splendor, his majesty, his power, his authority, and his his wealth. You have to remember that in ancient times, you, you, you couldn't just, you know, go down and buy a robe. You had to make everything from scratch. There was no local fabric store from which you could buy fabric. Everything was made from hand. And so it was incredibly expensive and time-consuming to make garments, which meant that you used as little fabric as possible. For a king to have a long, flowing robe, it signified his, his great power and wealth. But there's something else here that I want you to know. It signified something else to Isaiah. That is this. In ancient times, when a king defeated his enemy on the battlefield, he would go to that defeated king and he would take out scissors and he would cut out a piece of that defeated king's robe. And then he would have it sewn into or onto his own robe, thus lengthening it. And so the length of the train of a king's robe signified how many enemies he had defeated. Oh, isn't this good? Our king, the king of heaven, has defeated every foe. He has vanquished every enemy. And so the train of his robe fills the entire temple with glory. I love the way David puts it in Psalm 24 when he says, Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. This is who Isaiah sees high and lifted up and exalted. The train of his robe filling the temple with glory. He's seated on the throne. And one more thing to note in this first verse. We're just in verse one, guys. (laughs) Where did he have this vision? And this is where it gets really practical for us. It happens at the temple. He sees the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, what's significant about that? Well, the temple is where you would go in those days if you wanted to worship the Lord, if you wanted to seek the Lord, if you wanted to study the the word, if you wanted to meet with God, you went to the temple. And I think there's an application to be made there for each one of us. For those of us who are interested in having a divine encounter with God, I think you improve your odds by hanging out in the places where God likes to dwell. Now, I've already pointed out that God can meet up with you anywhere. He can, he can meet up with you at the beach or, or in your car or in, in your dreams. I mean, God meets people and encounters, has encounters with people all over the place. But having said that, it should be noted that there are certain places 
where you're just more likely to encounter him or to run into him. And we know from scripture the things that we can do that draw him in, that entice him. We know that we enter his gates with thanksgiving. And so when we begin our services with, with thanksgiving and songs of praise, it entices the Lord and it inclines his ear and it causes him to bend down. And furthermore, that we know that we, he inhabits the praises of his people. And so as we worship, God is drawn in even further. And we know this too, that the scriptures tell us wherever two or more gather in his name. And so there's unity there that that it draws him in. And the Lord says, I will be with them in their midst. And so the Lord loves to go to places where his name is exalted. His word is proclaimed and his people are gathered. Sounds like a pretty good description of what we're doing right here. And all we're doing, this whole thing, we're trying to increase the odds that the Lord might come down. We want to create a space and an environment that is conducive for God encounters. And I say that to make the following point. While coming to church is is a great way to boost your odds of encountering the Lord, it doesn't guarantee that that's going to happen. Some of you know this because you've come here week after week, year after year, but you've never encountered the Lord. And I see it. You know, I can look out and I can see in any given row, there's hundreds of us gathered here tonight. There will be thousands more tomorrow. And from row to row, person to person, one person can be encountering the Lord and they're just, they're receiving from his spirit. They're being shaped and molded and conformed into his image. And then the person sitting directly next to them or four people down on the same row, they're checked out and and they might as well be anywhere else. And so being here doesn't guarantee that you're going to encounter the Lord. I mean, just ask Isaiah. How many times had he gone to the temple prior to this? How many songs had he sung? How many sermons had he listened to? But he'd never encountered the Lord, at least not in this way. Now, was he a believer? Absolutely. He was a prophet. I mean, he was serving the Lord. He was engaged in ministry. He had good theology, but his life didn't radically change until after this divine encounter. Now, after this moment, he's never the same. And this is how God wants to take your relationship with him from theory to reality. Do you know what I mean by that? For a lot of Christians, God lives right here. And Jesus chided the Pharisees for this very thing. I mean, they knew God. They had plenty of book book smarts, and and they knew all the right answers. They could come up with, you know, the solutions to, to biblical questions and all the rest. But here's what Jesus had to say to the Pharisees. This is out of John 5, 39. I want you to read this together out loud with me. He said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Here's what Jesus is saying. If your study of God's word, if your study of the word of God doesn't lead you into a personal encounter with the God of the word, it's pointless. We don't study the Bible for the sake of studying the Bible. We don't sing songs for the sake of 
singing songs. We do it all to get into his presence, to encounter him. And and for a lot of us, the hurdle that we need to cross is we need to get through this boundary, this barrier of just living with good theology but not ever experientially knowing the Lord because there's this huge difference between knowing something in theory and knowing it experientially and knowing it personally. I'll give you an example. There are all kinds of facts that I could memorize and spit at you about the moon. I could tell you that the moon is, what, it's 200,000 miles from Earth. Pretty far. It's 400 times smaller than the sun. I could also tell you about the gravity on the moon. The gravity on the moon, I guess, is one-sixth the gravity that you experience here on Earth. And so you kind of float a little bit, and it's kind of fun like that. And so I have all these facts that I could tell you about the moon because I've studied this stuff. Or by studied, I meant just Googled that on the Internet a few hours ago. But we're Neil Armstrong to stand in my place and tell you about the moon. He would be speaking from a different place altogether. Do you know what I mean? Why? Because he has first-hand knowledge. He's walked on the moon. And he, he could tell you what it feels like to step on it. He could tell you what it feels like to allow moon dust to, to sift through his fingers. He could talk about the consistency of it. And he could describe not only the craters of the moon, but he could describe the view of Earth from the moon. Why? Because he has firsthand knowledge. And what I've experienced is that a lot of Christians know about God the same way I was just talking about the moon. They've memorized a bunch of facts, but that's not the same thing as knowing him. And and if you hear nothing else, hear this. The God that you read about in this book, he's real. And he wants you to know him. Not just to know about him, you can encounter him. And that's what Isaiah does here. He has an encounter with the Lord, high and exalted. So we've talked now about what Isaiah saw. Let's turn our attention now to what he heard. This is the the second point in your outline. Let's talk about what he heard. And we see this in verses 2 through 4. Let's go ahead and read those together. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And they were calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Wow. What an awesome scene, as if what we've already talked about wasn't enough. We have this image here of these angelic beings. We know from other parts of Scripture that the angels John saw, or Isaiah sees here, rather, are called seraphim. And they are the angels that surround the throne of God in heaven. They're incredible, awe-inspiring creatures. We get another description of them in Revelation chapter 4, where John adds this detail. All over them, from head to toe, they're covered with eyeballs. Isn't that weird? Kind of bizarre, right? So they have six wings, they cover their face with two wings, they cover their feet with two wings, they fly with two wings, so they got these six wings, and then they're covered with eyes. Why would God create these beings with eyes? I I suggest to you it's for this reason, because they have been designed or created to behold. They surround the throne, and so they're created to behold. Think about it, everything God makes, he designs with a purpose. Fish have gills so they can swim. They're designed for their environment. Birds have 
have wings so that they can flourish in the, the environment God designed them to inhabit. And so too, these seraphim have been designed by God to behold the beauty of God. They surround the throne. And so he gives them eyes to accomplish their purpose. And, and they respond as they behold the Lord, even though they're trying to cover their face out of humility and they cover their feet out of reverence. There's still so many eyes that they see the throne and they respond in worship. And this is the, this is the rhythm of how worship works. Rhythm, the worship is a rhythm of revelation and response. You see something of the Lord, something of his beauty, something of his heart, his character, his nature, his makeup, and then you respond in praise. And by the way, this is one of the ways you can know whether or not you have truly had an encounter with God. It will be revealed by the attitude with which you approach worship. If you've encountered the Lord, you will begin to spontaneously erupt in praise and worship. If on the other hand, you find yourself getting bored, disinterested in worship, it only proves you haven't yet encountered the Lord. Why? Because once you see him, you'll respond in this rhythm of revelation and response. We breathe in his grace. We breathe out his praise. These angels prove that. And what is the theme of their worship? God's holiness. Look at it right there in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. I don't know that we hear enough about God's holiness in, in songs. It's not a, a dominant theme in our modern worship circles, at least not to the extent that it appears to be in the heavenly scene. We prefer to sing about God's love and his mercy and his grace. And by the way, these are amazing themes that definitely, uh, you know, de they deserve some of our attention. But it is noteworthy that these angels who dwell in God's presence are most enamored by God's holiness. They're not singing eternal, 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 or wise, 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 or faithful, 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 but rather they sing holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, whenever you repeat a word, you do that to, to designate, um, it designates kind of intensity. For instance, in Isaiah 26, when it says, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. The phrase perfect peace is a translation of the Hebrew shalom, shalom. It's, it's, it's a double word there, shalom, shalom. It speaks of the intensity of the peace God gives. It's a perfect peace that God gives to the one whose mind is focused on him. And so the, the, the re-emphasis of the word, so repeating a word, it speaks of intensity. But if, if two times speaks of intensity, what are we to make of the fact that here we have the word holy being repeated not once, not twice, but three times? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's almost like there's one holy for every member of the Trinity. God, you're holy. Jesus, you're holy. Oh, the Spirit, the Spirit is holy, and every member of the Godhead deserves our worship. Perhaps we'd be more into the holiness of God if we knew what it would bring about in our lives, for the Bible declares that no one can see God apart 
from holiness. Without holiness, no one will see God. I think it's Hebrews chapter 14, verse 12 says that. And so we need to bring about this holiness, pursue holiness so that we might engage the living God. Why are they so focused on his holiness? Well, because of all the attributes of God. It is the one that most uniquely describes him. In some ways, it's a summary or a summation of all his other attributes. What wet is to water, what heat is to fire, what blue is to sky, holiness is to God. When we say that God is holy, we are telling him that he is complete and totally other. He is separate. He is perfect. He is pure. He is undefiled in every way, completely different than us. How into holiness is God? Well, if you look at the back of your Bible, again, I mentioned this text earlier, but in Revelation chapter 4, we get another similar description of the heavenly scene. It's written by John, and he too talks about these angels, and he's the one that gives us a a more detailed description of them. He tells us about the eyes, and and he also mentions the song that they sing, and it's so interesting, because if were you to go to Revelation chapter 4, you would see that these angels are singing the exact same song. Now, what's crazy about that is the book of Revelation is separated from the book of Isaiah by about 750 years. Yet the angels are still singing the same song. And John tells us that they sing it day and night. They never stop. My guess is if we were to go to heaven right now, we would hear the angels singing the same song. And it's not like they're doing it out of drudgery or out of discipline. They're not doing it half-heartedly or disinterestedly. How do I know that? Because in verse 4, it says the sound of their voices shook the temple. Literally, it caused an earthquake. This is the kind of praise and worship set that I'm looking forward to being a part of. Worship that brings an earthquake. I don't know how rowdy you guys got tonight, but not nearly rowdy enough. We, we, you know, on the pendulum, if we're somewhere in here, we could swing it a whole lot further this way until we have to worry about, you know, building codes and earthquake-proof structures. We're not worshiping hard enough because he's holy, because he's worthy. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what's going on in your life, there is a God in heaven who sits on the throne who is worthy of your praise. Amen. And it's not without precedent, by the way, this whole earthquake with the worship thing. Remember that story in Acts, Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison and their feet are in stocks. And and then at midnight, it says, they began to sing hymns and praises to God. And the other prisoners were listening. And this is what Acts chapter 16, verse 25 through 34 says. And God sent a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Listen, church, there is a kind of praise that shakes the foundations, that looses chains, that sets the captives free. When we worship God, hell shudders in fear because it releases the victory. It releases the anointing. It breaks the yoke of bondage. There is power in your praise, people. And so the angels worship God. And notice the result. The whole temple now fills with smoke. What is this smoke that fills the temple? Well, 
It's a physical manifestation of the Shekinah glory of God. How do I know that? Well, because at the tabernacle there in the Old Testament, God, he manifests his presence in the form of a pillar of smoke as it's at its entrance. Later on, the, or before that, prior to that, rather, there was the, the, the cloud that covered Mount Sinai wherein Moses went up and received the law. And so this smoke fills the place. It's a picture of the glory of God. Our praise, oh, what does it affect? It invites the presence and it brings in the glory. There's this beautiful book called Glory by Ruth Heflin. And here's what she says on this point. She writes, and I quote, praise until the spirit of worship comes. Worship until the glory comes. Then stand in the glory. This is my aim each and every time that we gather. Lord, reveal yourself. Reveal yourself. We need you. We want to encounter you. We want to experience you. And we do the things you like to draw you in because you are worthy. We've talked about what Isaiah saw. We've talked about what Isaiah heard. Now let's conclude by talking about how Isaiah's encounter forever changed. And we see this in verse 5, beginning in verse 5. He said, woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Remember what I said, you can't encounter the living God and remain the same person. It will change you. And the first way that Isaiah is changed after encountering the Lord is he he becomes intimately and acutely aware of how sinful he is. And whenever a believer has a true experience with the Lord, it doesn't build them up or fill them with pride, but rather it humbles them and it brings them lower. We see this illustrated throughout Scripture. One example would be Job. This is Job 42, verses 5 and 6. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. I had only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said And I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Job says, I had had a a hearsay, kind of secondhand understanding of who you were. I knew about you. I'd heard. But now I see. And it changes what I see in myself. Our uplook, it it affects our inlook and what we see in ourselves. Peter had a similar experience when he realized who Jesus was, the man sitting in the boat next to him. He said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And so Isaiah here has his divine encounter. And he says, woe is me. I'm undone. Literally, he says, "I'm, I'm ruined. That's Hebrew for I'm toast. I'm about to die. In the presence of God, he knew instantly that what he deserved was death. And and what he encountered here is the same thing we all come to an awareness of in the presence of the Lord, that I'm unworthy and undeserving. Now, it's interesting to note the change that Isaiah goes through. If we were to back up just one chapter, we would find Isaiah you know, releasing and proclaiming a series of woes on the people. Woe is a Hebrew word for judgment, impending doom. And he found him repeatedly pronouncing woe on the Israelites. He, he proclaims woe to the greedy, woe to the partiers and the mockers and the perverted and the self-conceited and the lawless. And so it's woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. But then he encounters the Lord and look what he says at verse five, woe is me, 
I'm undone. And again, this is where a true encounter with God will leave you. It will leave you humbled, unable to point the finger at anyone else. All you can do is fall on your face and confess your sins. You can tell when someone's had an encounter with the Lord because they'll be humble, not puffed up with arrogance and pride, but rather low in their own estimation. So he professes or confesses rather his sin. And then in verse six, one of the seraphim flew with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. I love this. This is so beautiful. Aware of his unworthiness, he confesses his sin. And what does the Lord do? He sends one of the seraphim to grab with tongs from the altar a coal. And now imagine that you're Isaiah in this moment. And you see this intense looking creature with six wings and eyes all over its body take a coal from the altar and it's flying towards you. Now you're really thinking you're toast. This is how your life ends, right? But instead, he takes the coal and he places it on his lips and it cauterizes them. And instead of killing him, it cleanses him. And this is what's beautiful. The thing that should have killed him cleansed him. The altar is the place of judgment. That's where you would bring your sacrifice to atone for your sin. And so you would bring a lamb or you would bring a goat or you would bring a bull or something and it would be sacrificed. And, and that animal's sacrifice then would cover over you. And so he takes a coal from that altar. And I love this because how tragic would it be if all we had was a throne, but there were no altar? Praise God for the altar, because if there were no altar, there would be conviction of sin, but no means of cleansing it. But praise the Lord, there is an altar. There is a means of atonement for the Christian, for the sinner. First John 1 9 states it like this, and let's read this together out loud. It's in your notes. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You confess and you're cleansed. Now, in Isaiah's day, forgiveness was found at the altar. That's where you would go. And that's where he receives his atonement here. But in our day, it's not the altar that we go to. It's the cross. And I'm here to tell somebody today, because you are burdened by guilt. What does the angel tell Isaiah? He, he tells him in verse 6, your guilt is taken away. And the Lord, not an angel, but the Lord has taken the blood that he shed at Calvary's cross. And he's, he's flying towards you in this moment. He's saying, your guilt is taken away. I wonder, where do you need the blood of Jesus to be applied in your life today? Maybe it's like Isaiah. It's, it's from your lips. But we know that you speak out of the abundance of your heart. And so in, in placing the call on his lips, he's really placing it on his heart. And maybe it's your heart that has turned away from the Lord. You've backslidden. Maybe you need to have the blood of Jesus applied to your hands and you've been involved in sinful activities or maybe it's your thought life. You need the blood of Jesus to be applied to your, your mind so that you have the mind of Christ. Maybe it's your eyes and you've used your eyes to behold wicked things and you need the blood of Jesus to cleanse your eyes or maybe it's your feet and you've been walking down a wicked path and you need to know that whatever it is, there is blood at Calvary's cross to cleanse you, to remove your guilt, to 
atone for your sin. I love the way the words of that old hymn put it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is power in the blood of Jesus. And so he cleanses the prophet. And then in verse 8, I heard a voice saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Oh, I love this. The Lord now is looking for volunteers. Having been cleansed, he is, he is, he is sent forth. He is he's given the opportunity to engage and partner with the Lord in ministry. Now, what's interesting about this is the Lord could have employed any number of means to accomplish his purpose. He could have just ripped through the heavens, flexed his muscles and said, guess what, world? I'm real. Believe in me. Or he could have sent one of those mighty seraphim. They would have done a pretty good job of proclaiming the everlasting gospel, don't you think? But instead, God in his sovereignty has chosen to partner with fallen, flawed, fractured, frail people. People like you, people like me, people like Isaiah. He uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Was Isaiah perfect? As we've already seen, he was far from it. But he was available. He raised his hand. He said, here I am. We've looked at this word before in the Hebrew. It's one word, three words in the English, one word in the Hebrew. You find it sprinkled throughout the Bible, and it's hineni. Here I am, Lord. I'm, I'm standing at attention. You give the orders. You already have my yes. And so he puts him into service. And that's all that God needs. As Isaiah has been sent, so have you. What did Jesus say after he gathered his disciples before he ascended into heaven? He told them, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine, so go and make disciples of all nations. Later on, he would say, you are my witnesses to the, the, the ends of the earth, ultimately. Tell them what you have seen. Tell them what you have experienced. This is the job of a witness all a witness does is it relay what they have experienced. Have you encountered the Lord? Have you been shaped by him? Have you been transformed by him? Have you been touched by his grace? Has it changed your life? Then share that message with the world. This is what Isaiah does. And if you read on, his life is never the same. This is incredible. I mean, think of how radically different his day ends from where it started. <laughs> He entered the temple that morning as a mourner, but he leaves as a missionary. He enters the temple as a spectator, but he leaves as a participant. He entered with all kinds of head knowledge about God. He knew about God in theory, but he leaves the temple that day a changed man. Man, he knows who God is in reality. And it changed him forever. He saw the Lord. He saw himself. And he saw the needs 
And God used that to bring him into his purpose and into his calling. And can I just leave you with this thought? Every time we gather like this, there's another opportunity. And the odds are good. The odds are good. The odds are good. Because we're here with one heart, one mind, one passion, one purpose. I don't know about you, but I'm hungry for the presence. David said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. And if there's one truth that gets underscored throughout the pages of God's word, it's this. God always goes where he's wanted. My son pointed this out to me just this past week. I found this so amazing. He was telling me about that, that painting in the Sistine Chapel with, um, is it uh, Michelangelo? And you know that famous part of the painting where you have the, the finger of man outstretched and the finger of God, and, and they're almost touching, but not quite. And here's what my son shared with me. He goes, if you look closely at that painting, God's finger is fully extended. It's outstretched. But Adam's is slightly curled as though he's drawing back. Are you fully engaged? Are you leaning in? Because if so, there's a God in heaven. He's on the throne. He longs to meet with his people. He longs to engage them. He wants to meet with you. He wants to change you. He wants to give you a vision of his throne in heaven that will reshape and recalibrate your entire existence. Will you pray with me? Lord, we need you. Will you declare that with me tonight? Say, God, I need you. The real you. I want to meet with you. Come on, keep praying with me. Say, I want a vision of you. Say this, say, I need a vision of heaven. That changes the way I see earth. That changes the way I see myself. That changes my priorities. That changes my passions. That orders my life. So I'm here, Lord. Come and meet with me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.